Well, as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, we come here to the second story with Philip. Uh, if you've been following along, uh, Acts chapters 1 to 7 really follow the apostle Peter more than anyone else. Then we get this little interregnum with Philip. Next week we hear about Saul. Then we hear about Peter again. Then we pretty much go back to Saul, whose name is changed to Paul. Yes, that Paul. And we follow him for the rest of the book. But what I want to, I'm going to give you a little quiz right now. It is ungraded. There is no shame. There's, uh, you know, I won't say anything good or bad about it at the end. But do you remember all the way back to Acts chapter 1? Jesus has risen from the dead, and then he gathers with the apostles and all the disciples together, and he tells them something. He gives them a mission. And he says, and here's what you need to do your mission. First of all, what, what do they need to do their mission? Anyone out there remember what, it, what they need? Right? Well, that's the mission. What, what do they need to do their mission? Holy Spirit, there we go. Yeah, courage is a big part of what the Holy Spirit gives. So I'll give you right times two back there. Uh, and then you're, you're right. That's the first thing. He says you need the Holy Spirit. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Now, let me ask you something. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ gone to the very end of the earth yet? You can say no. That's all right. Getting getting, yeah, we're getting closer all the time. But actually, a good friend of mine is a flight instructor at Moody Aviation in Spokane, and they train missionary pilots because there are still some places in the world that no roads go to. And to get the gospel there, they get in airplanes, they find open fields, they fly all these crazy places, land in all sorts of dangerous runways, just to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out there. There's whole schools training people to do that. The gospel hasn't gone to the ends of the earth yet. So that means the mission's not done, right? So what can we infer from that? The mission that Jesus gave to his apostles belongs to you and I and the whole church today. So we can take Acts chapter 1 and we can rephrase it, can't we? You will be my witnesses. Jesus is speaking to you and me, to our church here in Lemon Cove. You will be my witnesses in Lemon Cove and in Tulare County and in California and to the end of the earth. Does anyone here see a problem with this? Anybody? How in the world is a little church in Lemon Cove going to take the gospel to the end of the earth? What's that? The video? Yeah, we'll (laughs) take a video. Yeah. Support missionaries. Yeah, train pilots. Ah, That's an interesting thought. Yeah, see, that's, I think, what Acts chapter 8 is really about for us today. Because one of the things, I once heard Neil deGrasse Tyson give a lecture that was criticizing Isaac Newton for being a Christian, essentially. That's maybe not the most charitable way of phrasing it, but that's what I got out of it. He said, imagine the things Newton would have discovered if he wasn't limited by his faith. 
Because eventually Newton got to a place. He said, okay, I can sort of figure out the the motion of some of the heavenly objects, but the rest of them, God must just do it, is what Newton concluded. And Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying, if only he hadn't believed in God, he would have kept asking. He would have gone a little bit farther. Now, I have a different explanation for what's going on there. First of all, I think Newton was asking questions in the first place because he believed in God. I don't know if you recognize this, but Isaac Newton, in addition to all of the amazing science he did, wrote books of theology. They're not theology I'd really recommend that you read, uh, but he was concerned with who God was, and he was convinced. As a matter of fact, part of the reason he studied the natural world around him was because he believed that there was a God who made it all, and we knew God better by studying the world that he made. And not only this, but even more significantly, more foundationally, I'm going to propose to you this morning without really arguing, arguing it adequately, but I'm going to propose to you this morning that the only reason Neil deGrasse Tyson can do science today is because the human beings who came before him believed in God. If all we are is just a random confluence of events resulting in human beings, and all we are is a series of chemical reactions that happen inside of our bodies, then what reason do we have to believe that we have senses that accurately reflect the world around us? You ever hear people say, are we all just like brains in jars somewhere? Is the universe, I I read articles about this periodically, where people say, is the universe just a hologram or a computer simulation? Because if we don't actually have the foundation of God makes sense and he made a world that makes sense, when we go to study the world, we have no reason to believe that it actually corresponds to our experience of it. Unless we're created on purpose, we have no way of knowing if what we're seeing is really the way things are. Pretty scary thought. Take that, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's not fair. He's not here to defend himself. So I'm sure that he is more thoughtful than I'm making him out to be this morning. But I think that when we look at Newton, we start to think, okay, so the world, you know, it makes sense. If we study it, we can actually know something about the God who is out there, and he doesn't limit us in this way, but actually pushes us on to discover more and greater things. I don't remember how this relates to the sermon. This all made sense before I started going. I was hoping if I just kept talking about it, it would, I'd get back on track, but uh, let me come back to the text not going to be the A sermon in my preaching class today. Uh, Philip is dealing with this, oh, I remember, just like how Newton came to a point where he understood how, he didn't understand how the rest of the world could work. He said, that's just beyond my capability. I think the disciples were being challenged in the same way by God. God said, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem. They said, of course, I want you to go to Judea. And they said, yes, we can do that. They said, I want you to go to Samaria. And they said, are you sure? And he said, I want you to go even to the ends of the earth. And they said, now you're dreaming. God, we can't go that far. 
We can't do it. Think about this. You and I, like we can hop on a plane. It might be incredibly expensive these days, but we could hop on a plane and we could get to the other side of the world in like a day. Isn't that amazing? This person, let's come to the text here. It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. He's from Ethiopia, okay? He's an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. And he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. How long do you think it took the man from Ethiopia to make the trip to and from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia? Not years. If he, if he traveled as far as he could travel reasonably each day, it would take him about three to four months to make that trip. God, how are we going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? If we've got objections, I want us to understand that they weren't less for the people who came before us, but more. Whereas we say, God, we've got our lives here excuse me, the world's too big. How are we going to get out into all of it? They said, we can't get there. It's not even possible for us to go to the ends of the earth. We hop on a plane. We fly across the ocean. These people couldn't get across the ocean. Their obstacles were much bigger than ours. We say, how can we do this? It's a good question. But let me tell you, it is not an insurmountable one. So let's look at this Ethiopian a little bit more closely. We know it would have taken him three to four months to make this round-trip journey, at least three to four months. Now, I want you, he is an important official. It even says here, he's an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. Now, how do you think the queen would respond? How would your employer, past or present, respond if you said, I'm going to need three to four months off annually? Is that time you'd probably be granted? Because if it is, I would like to ask for three to four months off. <laughs> no, of course not. I don't know how he pulls this off. But what does that tell you about how much he wanted to get to Jerusalem to worship? I don't know if he did this every year or if this was just something he did once in his life, but it wasn't a small commitment. This, this getting to Jerusalem to worship this strange God of the people of Israel had an overriding importance for this Ethiopian. But let me tell you what would have happened when he got to Jerusalem. He's probably going for, for a festival, maybe for the Passover. And uh, when he got to the temple to worship, because remember, that's where you meet God. In the ancient world, in, in Jewish understanding, that was the place. The temple was the unique place where heaven and earth met. So on his way to the temple, when he got there, how far in would they let him go? Well, not very far. They'd basically let him get in through the first gate. And not to, that was called the court of the Gentiles, by the way. In the court of the Gentiles, remember when Jesus went to the temple and he saw people buying and selling and he made the whip and he drove them out? Do you know where they were buying and selling? 
the court of the Gentiles. So not only could he not go very far into the temple, right? So he's being reminded by his physical presence in the temple how far away God wants to keep him is what it would have felt like. And then while he's actually in that court, of what quality would his worship have been, do you think? Maybe next week we'll bring in, we'll have like an an open house and we'll bring in a lot of vendors and we'll put them in the sanctuary and we'll try and worship at the same time. You think that we'll have like a really meaningful experience that morning while people are saying, you know, the the smells of the food and the shouting of the, the people doing business in the marketplace. Man, I think it probably was a letdown for him. He was probably more discouraged than ever when he got there. And then finally, Uh, Not only does he have to stay at the outskirts because he's a Gentile, he's an Ethiopian, uh, he also uh, is a eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, he's been emasculated. And people in the courts of the East often did this to their officials and their servants, and I'm not 100% sure why. But it wouldn't have been surprising to folks that, oh, you're an important official because you're a eunuch. We know that. But eunuchs were not allowed in Israel. They were, uh, you couldn't make eunuchs in Israel, probably for some very understandable reasons. But it would have been a further mark of being unclean and unloved by God that this man was a eunuch. I just imagine he traveled all this way with his hope so high, and when he got to Jerusalem, when he got to the temple, he probably went away more discouraged than he'd ever been in his life. And God sends Philip to this man. Go south to the road. He started out and he met the Ethiopian eunuch who had gone on to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Why did he say stay near it? Because it's moving, right? By the way, chariot can mean carriage and that's probably what it means here because he's sitting in it. So he's in his carriage being pulled by the horses, and God says, go stay by that carriage. What would that look like for Philip? So probably, first of all, he's got to run to catch up to it. And then, I don't know, like, I don't know much about horses, but Elaine, tell me, if a horse is kind of like pulling along, are you walking, or are you trotting, or are you jogging to stay up with him? Jogging or running. Jogging or running to keep up. So subtle, Right? Philip sprints to the chariot, and then he's jogging alongside it, right? And he's probably jogging, you know, like this. Like out of the corner of his eye, trying to keep an eye on the Ethiopian in the chariot. So do you think that the people in the the chariot or the carriage, whatever it was, would look over at Philip and probably be like, who's this guy? And what is he doing? This is an awkward situation for Philip. And, you know, when it comes to fulfilling that mission that God has given us, right, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends and our neighbors and the strangers around us and even the people across the world, we've got that same feeling of running beside the chariot, right? Don't mind me. The Holy Spirit sent me here. How are you doing? So I don't know what they're thinking or what they're feeling, but it feels weird, doesn't it? And I bet Philip is wondering, what am I doing here? This is ridiculous. But here's what happens. Philip ran up to the chariot, right, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. 
Philip doesn't know that this man has come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem just to worship. But God does. And God connects Philip to the Ethiopian. And now it's easy, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? God brought Philip to the Ethiopian, and he didn't say, Philip, you need to figure out a way to speak to this foreigner who may not even speak your language that you have nothing in common with while you are running beside his chariot. Figure out how to talk him into the kingdom. doesn't say that. He says, just go stay by the chariot. And Philip gets there, and he finds that the place is set for him. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? Because that's the natural question, right? I know about Isaiah the prophet. I read him all the time. I've been in synagogue all my life hearing about these things. But that's not the end of the miracle. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? Do you hear the frustration again of the Ethiopian? I am trying so hard but I cannot get any closer to God no matter what I do. I've had this great disappointment. How can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invites Philip up, and Philip's like, thank you. He gets up on the chariot, and he sits down next to him, and, and then he says, this is the section that I'm reading right now. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Who is that passage about? It's about Jesus. I mean, this is the easiest conversion that anyone will ever have. This man is desperately waiting to hear about the God he wants so badly to know. And God sends the Apostle Philip directly toward him at the perfect moment to speak to him about Jesus. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And he just lays the whole story out in front of him. And what, is, what happens? Right? As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Baptize me. Oh, man. How amazing. Now, at the beginning, we said, uh, how are we going to take the gospel to the very end of the earth? How, as a small church in Lemon Cove, can we possibly do that? Folks, first, God is not going to leave us short of opportunity. He's just not. Did Philip arrange any of this? Did Philip decide, I'm going to go to that road and see if I can meet someone from the end of the earth? No. <clears throat> God sent Philip. He gave him the opportunity. That's God's business, to make those opportunities. Hey, let me tell you, I, uh, this was several years ago. I remember we were at a big dinner with a whole bunch of people, and we'd known each other for a while, and I've been praying and thinking, God, I want to share the gospel with these people. Give me an opportunity. 
And it certainly didn't come immediately after I prayed. It took a while. But eventually we're sitting down and we're talking and we're just talking about how the world is so messed up and it's so broken. And the Holy Spirit was just inside my heart like banging on the walls. Come on, man. This is it. This is your chance. And I said, I am so happy that even though the world is just as broken as we're talking about, I know someday it's going to be okay. It's all going to be made right by Jesus. And it was a bit of a conversation stopper. People weren't like, uh, you know, they, they didn't say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. They also didn't say, you know, whoa, Jesus, where's the water? There's something in between. See, that's not everything. I, I think I've told you that the danger in reading the book of Acts is we look at what happened to, to the Christians and the church in Acts, and we think, uh, why isn't my church more like that? Why am I not more like that? And let me just tell you that the book of Acts only tells you select events that happened in church history. Okay? It doesn't tell you everything. There's, some, there's a lot of amazing, and there's a lot of you know, very bad. But... It doesn't tell you about all the days in between, does it? There were a lot of sermons where 3,000 people didn't follow Jesus that day. I take a lot of comfort out of that. And that's all right. And that was the outcome in, in that situation, where it was a seed that God will grow in the way that he chooses at the right time. But it was the right Moment. It was the opportunity God provided that the Holy Spirit pointed me toward and that he'll use in just the right way at just the right time. Because isn't that the other truth about the Ethiopian? Something had happened earlier in his life to point him toward Jerusalem. There were a lot of moments in his life before that one that led to this where he was finally ready to hear all about Jesus from Philip. God will give you the opportunity. The Holy Spirit will tell you when it comes and all that you need to say. You don't have to tell everybody everything every time. Just as much as the Holy Spirit leads when it happens. And you will hear him in your heart. And just speak. Just speak into that circumstance and that situation. And finally... What you invest in others is invested in a church that grows larger because of your investment. Get that? If you put, Warren Buffett is a big believer uh, in buying stocks and then leaving them alone. He says that America has always been a prosperous nation, and if you just put some money in there, you know, put it in, in as broadly in the market as you can, and forget about it, it will grow. And so, by the way, this is not investment advice this morning. I'm not qualified for that. But I think the principle is parallel here. If you just invest in the work that God wants to do in this world, it will grow and it will spread and it will go out 
And not only, I, when we left uh, the church that I interned at while I was in seminary, one of the things that I did, because that church had blessed us so much with opportunity, with training, and with love, and before we left, I made sure that the people in that church knew whatever you have built into me and into my family, we are carrying forward into a new ministry. And because you built into me, it will be your ministry as well. You will be the silent partner in that ministry in most ways. But your work in me will yield through my work in others as well. Philip never went to Ethiopia. We don't know how far he went. He probably went actually pretty far. But Philip's investment in the Ethiopian went there. Which, by the way, if you know how today, like it, or maybe when you were kids and you were thinking, uh, like, I want to I dig a really deep hole. Where did you dig your hole to? China. Because China's as far away as we can imagine. I don't know if it's actually geographically as far away as, as it could be. But it's, it's on the other side of the world. And that's when people in the Roman Empire said going to Ethiopia, that's what they meant. I'm going to the end of the earth. Because that's as far as people knew about and farther in some ways. Whatever work you do in the people that you meet goes beyond your immediate context and heads out into the rest of the world too. So folks, when it comes to fulfilling that mission in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in Lemon Cove, and Tulare County, in California, and all around the world. It simply starts by what we build at home. And that will go out in ways we never anticipated or expected. Now, finally, I, I just want to say, this is not the sermon that says you should never go outside of your context and outside of your comfort zone. It's simply the sermon that says it's God's business to figure out how it gets to the end of the earth, and he will use us in surprising ways. So when the missionaries come and they say, is God calling you somewhere else? I don't care how young or old you are, you should listen. Say, is God calling me there? For me, I, I, I totally get it when we get scared when people say that, uh, because we think God will send us to the worst place we can imagine, don't we? God calls me outside of my home to some other place. Clearly, he will send me the place I want to go least. So for me, when I was praying that God, you know, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Just please don't send me to Papua New Guinea because I don't like spiders. My friend Ian went to Papua New Guinea and he said they have spiders as big as dinner plates that weave webs as big as a human being. I don't want to go there. And there was that part of my heart that was thinking, that's where God wants to send me, right? God's not like that, Okay. <laughs> But God will take the gospel exactly where it needs to go. And all that, need, all that we need to do is be faithful to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. 